Next Chapter Podcasts. This is Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. What Shakespeare is to theater, J.R.R. Tolkien is to fantasy. And I've got a podcast to recommend if you've ever wanted to read The Lord of the Rings or anything in Middle-earth. The Prancing Pony Podcast. Every week, your hosts, Alan and Sean, explore the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, bringing along plenty of pop culture references, nerd humor, and a few bad puns. They cover a few pages each week, taking a deep dive into your favorite stories. And while longtime readers still learn from the Prancing Pony podcast, they're also very welcoming to newcomers. So, if you're ready to dive into the most beloved world in fantasy literature and become a part of a vibrant, active community of listeners, look for the Prancing Pony podcast wherever you listen. Hi. My name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. In all of our Play On Podcast series, we strive for equality and inclusivity in all respects, including casting. Wherever possible, wherever it makes sense dramaturgically or conceptually or in any way whatsoever, we look for roles that women or gender nonconforming or gender nonspecific actors can play, roles that have been traditionally played by men. We like to think that we're part of the vanguard of this brave new world of inclusivity, but the truth is that there have been many artists and arts organizations that have been way ahead of us for a long time. One of those artists is Lisa Wolpe. She plays a wide range of roles in our play on podcast series, The Winter's Tale, most notably the role of Camillo. That's Leonti's right hand and then Polixenes' right hand. It's a part that has been traditionally played by a man. She also shows her ventriloquist-like skills in other roles throughout the series, including Diane, the old lady-in-waiting, and various gentlemen. This is part two of my interview with Lisa Volpe. You founded the all-female multicultural L.A. Women's Shakespeare Company, which you just referenced. You founded it in 1993, produced, directed, performed in many, many roles uh, with that company. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Was it just you that decided, I want to create this theater company? Did you have a, a, a group that you decided to do this with? How did it come about? Well, I was um, 17, I think, when I first went to Shakespeare and Company and started working with Kristen Linklater and Tina Packer. And so I fell in love with that company, with their clown master, um, Mary Conway, uh, my, my, still my favorite mentor, Natsuko Ohama, who's headed voice at uh, USC. So I became a master teacher with them in clown and in text over the 10-year period that I was uh, on the East Coast with my then husband, um, who was a filmmaker who got signed by William Morris as a cinematographer and director and had to come to L.A. So I came to L.A. with David and... Um, had already started working with Kristen Linklater's new international all-female multicultural Shakespeare company called Company of Women. We spent three years on our first show, Henry V, in which I played Henry. And we would go to different universities with master teachers, uh, Fran Bennett, Kristen Linklater, Mary Conway, Natsuko Hama, 
um, and really great fight people like Erica Builder. We'd work through text and poetry and clown, unpacking the scenes from Shakespeare, trying to figure out what is an all-female aesthetic. Um, our director there was Maureen Shea, a feminist who, when I played Henry, asked me to play it in a Donna Karen zip-up leather uh, form-revealing outfit and to start it playing tennis in tennis shorts, you know, doing the mock, mock, mock with the tennis balls. Mm. Um so we had an aesthetic difference in that company, although it was a deep plunge with my master teachers in a collaborative way that we had done for many years, where the Alexander person works with the fight person and the voice works with the text. And we all work together, uh, coming in and out of the room, trying to help the actors find new ways in. But Patrice Johnson, who's a fantastic Black Shakespearean actress, you might know her work, uh, was playing the Princess of France. And she and I did the love scene and we thought, oh, we could totally rock this love scene. This is great. And then the director came in and said, now I want you to disassociate yourself and play the whole scene as though you are one with a Christian God and everything you're doing in France is rape and nothing you're doing with your friends is intentionally friendly. You're manipulating everybody, uh, which was a funny way for me to go about the acting of it because it wasn't my gut reaction to the text. Mm -hmm. Um and I was performing with very strong players. So Kristen Linklater was playing Exeter. In our first scene, we were playing chess. And she did this move where she brought her hands up from under the board and blam, just upended all the chess pieces. And I thought, well, this is going to be a game. This Virago, my master teacher, is going to be Exeter. And I will never gain status in this room. Mm. But it was good for that kind of paranoid reaching for power and not trusting people around you. Uh, I think at that point I was 30. I was playing Henry V with grownups. Mm -hmm. um, but we we worked on that for three years. We did it at Smith College and at Shakespeare and Company. And then I moved to uh, Los Angeles with my husband. When we broke up, I was working as a corporate producer because I was a really good producer. So I would put shows into Madison Square Garden and stuff like that. Uh, so I could make enough money to live on in about six months. But I had quit acting because I thought there's nothing for me. And as a Shakespearean actress, I'd already done Viola and Rosalind. You know, the, mm -hmm. I was already playing Malvolio in Workshop and Henry V with my master teachers. When I was looking for a process that really revealed what I wanted to reveal, which is something about a circle of women when the last woman raises her hand. It takes a while for people who have been frightened by classroom bullies to find their voice in the room. So anyway, I started the L.A. Women Shakespeare Company. The first show was Romeo and Juliet. I played Romeo, which I, uh, I had written a clown play called Parzival. I was very interested in love, innocent love in a violent world, especially as a queer person. You know, like, why is everybody coming at me with this kill, kill, kill stuff? I actually have this feeling in my heart and in my body. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it was a runaway success. And over the next 23 years, I worked with about a thousand women and girls. Um uh, I directed most of the plays. Tina Packer came out and directed one. Daniela Verone came out and directed one. Um, but I liked the idea of being inside of the show, uh, having like a six or seven week rehearsal process, um, building it with good friends that probably a half or two thirds of the company would be returning actresses that were uh, growing in their work. And then we'd have our apprentices and students from the universities because we were all teachers as well. And also in L.A., people leave for commercials on opening night. You have to have understudies ready to go. There's a system here where you don't get paid a lot of money. But the benefit was I really became an expert on Shakespeare. You know, I played Hamlet twice. I played, you know, Shylock 
three times, Richard III three times. And when you go through them and you have the words, you grow faster. And also you see the 12-year-old girls coming up saying, I'm playing Shylock in my camp. You know, when he says blah, 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 I'm like, oh yeah. That's... So you can collaborate. Like I once did when I stood and talked about Richard III with Ian McKellen and I felt kind of groovy. I feel like that now with my international students that are breaking all the boundaries and they're 23 and they're, you know, not playing their own gender and they're not sure what the plays mean, but they're, they're really, they're really trying to build a new theater. And like you, you know, we're coming at Shakespeare with adaptations that make it more relatable, more accessible, smaller chunks, deeper dives, um, less artificial intonation, the boldness to change something if it's not working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think the gender thing doesn't work a lot. Like Taming of the Shrew is a very toxic play. Lavinia is a, is a role I never want to do. I just don't want to go through some of the things I get it because I've directed reverse gender Shakespeare a lot. Like I directed at UCLA, a reverse gender revengers tragedy. And almost all of the women playing the rapists had been raped. And mm. almost none of the men playing the girls who get shoved up against the wall, who have no names that are just an instigation for some male action hero's journey. They wanted to stop rehearsal and go like, Oh hell no, you can't shove me up against the wall and give me no name and rape me. And where, where is my monologue? <laughs> Mm -hmm. We're like, I know, dude, it's tragic. We're just flipping this for a minute so you can look at it. It'll be over in a month. Mm -hmm. Hang with us. This is the female experience. Do you know what I mean? So there's yeah. something about reversing it that walking in somebody else's shoes really gives you power. And back to the Winter's Tale, it's not, um, it's not a knee-jerk reaction to a patriarchy. I've played four of the different roles. Camillo is not the same as Leontes. Do you know what I mean? It's not right, all right. men. You know, it's when a guy goes off like this when a woman is giving birth in a dungeon by herself mm -hmm. can we feel any of that do you know what i mean can we feel what that is and it's happening all over the world it's been happening all over the world every day yeah um so we should be able to feel something and i think art helps us feel something whereas you know it's very hard to read the political news every day and have an authentic reaction anymore because it's so crazy and so non-human in a way the, like the debt ceiling today <laughs> like, right it's <laughs> are there no grown-ups in the building you know <laughs> we already spent this money you can't change your mind now um you, i want to return to um something you mentioned early on in this interview you talked about playing male characters with the male silhouette yeah and it kind of ties into the whole pronoun conversation and, and transformational acting versus identity acting, if we could call it that. Can you dive into that a little bit for us? I get the sense from what you were saying that you prefer to play the characters as written, that, that, that Iago is a male and you will be a male character. Unless we collaborate on a different idea. I, I'm mm -hmm. fine on collaborating on a deep idea as long as it's thought through. Like I went to play uh, Gonzalo at Elm Shakespeare a few months ago, and they had cast Cynthia DeCure, who's a Latin ex-actress, as Alonso. Still calling her the king, still using she, her pronouns, but she was the king. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do you want a little white guy running around pontificating after this beautiful brown woman? Let me be a white woman. 
you know? Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, but you play men. I'm like, I don't only pay men. I am actually a female. I know a lot about it. I can play a female. So what I loved about that was I got to play this English woman who was, you know, a colonialist. She's looking out at the island, but she was also in love with Prospero, who was a black man. And she was looking at this brown woman who was supposedly her best friend, thinking, you never asked me about my son. I have a son, too, you know. I'm, I am alone here on this island because of you. I am loyal and you're a murderer. So to be in that place took me away from being like Smee to Captain Hook or something and allowed me to really navigate um, white women and their indirect ways, given a situation where there's power involved. What is this backstabby negotiating we never tell the truth thing? So I got to do that as Gonzalo, which was really fun. And the last time I was in The Tempest and Regenerated, I played Antonia, which is completely different than Antonio. I was stunned in that play to find out that I was forgiven for trying to kill somebody. I was like, what is mm-hmm. happening? I'm like, oh, because it's a male character. Hmm. But I didn't, I didn't think, why was that so unusual to be forgiven when he says, for your ambition, I forgive you at the end of the play? And I thought, oh, you would never forgive a woman for this. This is the same thing you do for Angelo in Measure for Measure. This is the blanket forgiveness for guys who try to kill people. It was very strange. But as Antonia and also as um, Gonzala, I found a special relationship with Miranda. Do you know, this is the child you were going to kill. She's grown up. She's looking you in the face. This is your niece, you know, for Antonio Mm -hmm. and Sebastian. That doesn't often get a moment when the guys are just playing it. But as a female, I could slip a ring off my finger and give it to her, you know, on stage and tell her it was from her mother and create a bond there. Now, you don't have to do that stuff according to gender, but I think a female Prospero is different than a male Prospero. I think those particular control issues exist in all humans. But I think that particular expression of it, of binding people and enslaving people, and threatening people is more male than female in my experience. Then if I was going to do a play about that behavior, I'm not sure I would use a female as a female in that role, because I'm not sure that's really what's killing society at, at large. I think it's more men who do that. Uh, in my opinion. That, well, that, that, that's that, a, a perfect segue into what I was going to ask. And I think you've kind of answered it, but I, I, are there roles in the canon in Shakespeare that you think really have to be played by one gender or another? I don't think so because I think they were written for an all male company. And so I think they're written with a kind of grace and wit that allows for gender play. Mm. It's harder in a project like ours where I'm standing next to a man, I'm playing a man and he's playing a man. That's harder because, you know, normally it's, it's just a different timbre of the voice, a different resonating chamber. I can't tell how successful it is because when I'm listening to it, I'm so critical. I'm like, oh, you aged yourself up too much. It's the same guy. 16 years doesn't make you an old. Like, I'm just listening to it for the first time. Mm-hmm. But it's harder. I remember when for Tina Packer, I was in Coriolanus and I played an old man called Sicinius. I was probably 32. Mm-hmm. He did that show twice. And Dan McCleary, who's a huge guy who wrote a Harley, was you know, very strong and had chest hair and massive dude standing on a plinth. 
And I charged across the room and I reached up my little tiny hands to pull him off the plinth. And I suddenly burst out laughing because it was ridiculous. It was rehearsal. And Tino's like, no, Volpe, you should have done it. I'm like, he's so <laughs> big and I'm so small. She thought it was genius. This little old man running across to pull him off the plinth. <laughs> so we kept it in, but I had to laugh for a minute because we do suspend our disbelief in the theater. Um, and I just think, like the last one interesting thing that I did in Prague, not this this last time I did a reverse gender musical of Taming of the Shrew. So I really get to look at the patriarchy any way I want in these projects. Before that, I did Richard II. I played Richard, dyed my hair purple, and everybody on my side, the Fabulosi, were played by trans people, and everybody on the heteronormative side uh, were played by women playing men. So that's the kind of gender reveal work we can do. So I do a lot of work on gesture, male presenting gestures, like pronated hands instead of supinated hands, uh, grounding your voice from behind your pubic bone, uh, bone instead of, you know, a, a more uh, light and um, facially resonant voice. Um, and also the the way that we sustain gestures in the theater, the way that we hold space, almost like a man on an airplane expanding in his chair and a woman folding herself into a narrow angle. We do the same thing on stage. Women have a hard time at first expanding themselves. But that's what was so great about having an all-female company for 23 years. Over time, it was second nature to certain of us to step up and go like, I know where the hot spot is downstage. I know where the lights are. I know I've got responsibility for the entire audience. I'm going to go back row, front row, the middle. You guys who are sleeping, you kids leaning forward. I got you. I got you. You know, the whole thing of being a leading man, there's a mm. lot of skills involved. And Hamlet has 1,500 lines. Gertrude and Ophelia combined have 350 lines. If you don't get to play leading man, you don't accrue all of those skills. So when I was in The Tempest, I was playing Alonzo. I didn't have that much to do. But there was a kid named Larry who was 15 who was playing Adrian who just put his head on his desk saying, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> I said, Larry, I got you. So we spent a month just doing the things that we would do, which is like, this is a dagger. If you want to reverse your grip, flip it this way. If you're going to do something interesting on stage, go down with the dagger, then come up, then flip it. You know, all the little mm -hmm. techniquey things that the gentlemen show each other in the locker room, you know, right, right. here's the cool way to, you know, holster your six gun type of thing. And when the girls get to do it, we just feel a little bit extra fly because we always want to play the games too. Mm -hmm. We want to be in the game. My brother and I, we had swords when we were kids. So we did it. We were living in the Canary Islands for three years. So we just played heroes. We made capes and swords. I mean, we had toys too. We had Barbies and GI Joes and trucks and chemicals to burn through the linoleum floor with, but we weren't gendered in our experience. But we were living in the Canary Islands, which is a heavily um, uh, male dominated place. And girls weren't allowed to go out and have fun mm. at all. Like you couldn't go for a walk on Saturday night by yourself. Whereas the guys could. So I that's when I first started cutting my hair like a boy's and wearing the clothes my brother did. You were I Arya Stark. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of us girls were, we just called ourselves tomboys because there were so many limitations on what we were supposed to experience. It had nothing to do with our pronouns, really. It was this weird color-coded pink or blue thing that started to happen at Kmart. And it was really hard when you had all these cool friends in high school and you're all thinkers and we're all writing together and playing sports and going to parties. And then, and then there would be this reductive thing where all the girls had to 
get a gunny sacks dress and all the boys had to get blue polyester suits and we'd go and dance in this weird way. <laughs> I just thought, I guess, I guess you're preparing us for the world, but really when we go to the river in the pickup truck and we get the rope swing going, you know, and we got some sandwiches and some suntan lotion, that's how we hang out. You know, mm. it was not so much about, and also, you know, I was born in 1958. So the generation before me was heavily uh, uh, celebrating the binary, the martinis and the skirts and the, how to make your husband happy. Just be quiet when he gets home and have dinner ready. Mm-hmm. My my parents were breaking that all to pieces. You know, they both worked. <laughs> uh-huh. Were they in the arts? Were they? Or, what were, no, my what dad were... was a professor of languages who was educated at Harvard and taught at Stanford. And my mother ended up teaching high school um, when they when they split up. But my dad had a really big bandwidth. He he spoke five or six languages. He was a warrior. He's a boxer. He was a scholar very interesting person. And my mom was very artistic. She loved the theater. She designed sets for her high school when she was um, a young artist and later designed houses that they would build in the Canary Islands. She drew a lot. And um, in my house, we always had a bedtime story. I never went to bed without someone sitting on the bed and making up a story or reading one from a book ever. We just loved stories. And I think that's why I love podcasts and audible books. And that's why I love being an actor. And I love doing audio books. And I love voices and languages. It's just a really great way to travel in the imagination and feel the warmth. For me, it's very comforting to hear an actor uh, read a good text, because the intention is so heartwarming. To receive a story, it just puts me into a good place. How did you end up in the Canary Islands? My stepfather um, was a builder and my mother had multiple sclerosis. She had just gotten into remission and she just wanted to get away from California as far as she could. So we were, the three kids were dumped in Austria with an old nanny of hers and they went off to Africa. We were going to live in Kenya, but she sang five foot two eyes of blue for this tribal chief and he wanted to marry her and she got a little scared. So we compromised. We didn't move to Africa. We moved to these islands off the coast of Morocco, the smallest island where there were no white people and no tourists at that time. It's called La Palma. And the sand was black from the volcanic rock and the banana plantations over the whole island. And we had just learned German because we were in Austria and we were then uh, in the Canary Islands and spoke Spanish for a couple of years. So that ability to take on languages or mimic what's around me I just love it. If I go to Edinburgh, I'm talking like a Scots person in a minute. It's just terrible. But <laughs> it's 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 an affliction for many actors. I can yeah. Attest. And it pays off. It pays off for us. <laughs> Somebody calls and goes, can you play Scrooge? You go, yes, I've been using that accent all my life. <laughs> I did. If I were a rich man at Utah, I've been singing that song since I was a kid. But I got to come out in a full beard and present it as a man for their uh, um, fundraiser. I think that's what's different now is we're seeing people on stage that we we never saw when I was a kid. Mm. And so it's really exciting as whole waves of people break into the mainstream now. It's exciting. I mean, it's confusing because I don't mm. know what's wanted anymore. But also as an older actress, I'm finding opportunities that I didn't know would be here. So you you feel hopeful about the future for theater, for entertainment? 
Well, I, I, I love the theater and the kids that I know that are involved in theater are dynamic humans growing in their hearts in a really great way. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to the theater. I know that attendance is down over 50% across the industry. That's not a small number. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think that it's going to become more hybrid because we've learned uh, it's less expensive, not to meet an actor in person. And then it's less expensive not to have to house everybody for three months. Um, but there's something about bringing people together, which is gorgeous. So I think theater will survive. And I think for myself, I'm adding more music, uh, more modern elements like hip hop and visuals. But it comes down to, for me, it's still the feeling that Shakespeare is my favorite thing. For me, listening to Shakespeare, speaking Shakespeare, listening to people talk about Shakespeare is really satisfying. And for many of the kids I'm teaching, they feel the same way. I don't know if we're going to come through it because, honestly, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. I went to New York and I saw maybe three dozen plays. It cost thousands of dollars for me to have that experience. Mm-hmm. And I have, had kids in my, I was teaching high school in the Bronx. And they'd never even been into Manhattan. So you wonder, you know, how do you get these opportunities of having access to international work? My solo show just got booked into uh, the Verona Festival, which will be great. So I'll go uh, from Prague to Italy. And in between, I have a month off. So I think I'm booking Gdansk, Poland, and Denmark, Elsinore. And then the job is to find other places where you can work and learn, to find new projects to work on. I'm going to write up this Charlotte Cushman show. Oh, I hope you do. I was going to say, somebody's got to turn this into uh, an epic, a biopic, a a, a theatrical extravaganza, all of it. What what an incredible story. So incredible. I think it should be done. And um, I don't know who's going to do it, but somebody will. I think Margot Robbie will probably do it. She's got a Mm. seven-picture deal for women in Shakespeare. Mm. Hoping to work with her. She's a genius at certain things. I think... I don't know if they kicked that down the road, but she had a big uh, deal. That's a, I'm going to put a non-disclosure clause for anybody listening to this interview. You cannot disclose this idea because Lisa, it's Lisa Volpe's. Okay. <laughs> Two Actually, questions. Friend, yes, go ahead. I, I we, and then I'm I'm afraid we we have to wrap up. I, I, I which I hate to say because my goodness, you're a font of incredible information and insight and just just captivatingly brilliant but uh you've done so much work in shakespeare so i have a question about what you have come to feel about that person who is this person shakespeare if i mean do you feel like you know this person through all the work you've done that's i think uh question number one and then the, the last question what do you want to do next? What role do you want to play in the canon? Or what would you direct if you could direct anything? So I guess that's three three questions. Who is Shakespeare? Who do you want to play? And what do you want to direct? I think attention must be paid to Mary Sidney. People who are interested should read Sweet Swan of Avon, who uh, Mary Sidney had two sons who are the two people that the folio and the sonnets are dedicated to her younger son. Philip was the only uh, lover of King James 
allowed to kiss him on the lips in court. Her older son was in charge of what plays were done in court. And had her work ever been proved to be Shakespearean, all her stuff would have been taken away, which is uh, why she would have needed a beard. You can look into it. I don't want any table pounding here. There's no proof on who wrote Shakespeare. I don't really think Richard II and Mary Wives of Windsor are of the same moment, of the same hand, or of the same thought. I strongly feel that a group of people were involved in the writing. Um, I know that Mary Sidney had a place called Wilton House where all the greatest poets of the era uh, wrote, and she had a library of 10,000 volumes. Uh, she had all of the Ur manuscripts from which the plays were derived. So you would have had to have the Ur Hamlet. You'd have to be able to read German. You'd have to be able to translate it. And you'd have to be able to write an iambic pentameter. And Mary's brother, Philip, invented this sonnet sequence. Um, he was killed as a teenager at war, and she picked up that work. But women were only allowed to translate by law. Uh, so I think there's a strong hand from Mary Sidney. She was also someone who studied with John Dee every month. She was an alchemist and invented invisible ink. And John Dee, arguably, but probably uh, designed the Globe Theater. He was a magician who advised Queen Elizabeth. And um, I'm very interested in sacred geometry and the symmetry of the lines in the poetry. I've done a lot of work on that. Um, I worked at the Globe Theater for a month in 2000 as an international fellow and did monologues on that stage in the mornings for a couple hours every morning and then worked with Glenn MacDonald, their movement specialist. And she showed us how to walk an infinity sign while doing a sonnet. There's certain patterns that are really interesting when you become a practitioner at our level. Um, so, so there's that. Um, okay, I, then I have, to, I, I have to interrupt with yet another question. Yeah. Given the sacred geometry and the patterns and whatnot, are we playing with fire here with these translations? Have you been a bit spooked by the idea of translating English into English the way we oh, do with the well, play on Shakespeare Project? Well, when I was at the Globe on stage, I took our 13 international fellows through uh, the classic regendering exercise that we've been doing for 20 years in my company, um, where you sort of rebirth yourself as the other gender and you go through ages of your life and then you come into the context of the play that you're in and you begin to speak from a more informed place. So we did this transformational thing, which has the tremendous vibe to it. And the stage manager ran up with Mark Rylance's metaphysics book and said, you did this and then you did this and then you did this and then you did this. And then in, in Elizabeth's time, you would have been killed for that, but we're so glad you're here. So for me, walking into the fire is the original intent of shape-shifting, of finding the intelligent pattern in the human, as below, so above, that we're channeling upward towards the divine, a sense of truth of human experience, and that the asking for help opens us up, but also seems to open up a response from the larger love force to give us what we need some of the time. I'm not gonna talk about fairness and what we deserve, but the plays usually involve opening up to a oneness, a universe, a one song through levels that go violence, prose, poetry, song, and then up through the open roof towards the sky gods for prayer and communication and reinforcement that we still love that which is divine and we still strive for harmony within ourselves. 
In terms of the translation project, it's different because I've done eight or nine of them and they've expanded my life in certain ways. They're always uh, beautifully uh, catered. There, there's there's money involved. There are great artists involved. The plays are really thoroughly um, investigated as far as time allows. The word choices are hard for me because I, I know the plays by heart already. Mm -hmm. So I always jump like it's a mistake. But that's me. That's somebody who's obsessive about three dozen plays, like a lifetime on three dozen plays. I can't assume that everybody's going to have that. I remember when I first directed Spring Awakening and I'm directing this perplexing scene going, the language is so interesting. I have them feeding grapes. I said to Michael Addison, my directing teacher, what do you think? He said, that's from Othello. I said, what's Othello? So I was 17. I didn't know. You know, I thought mm -hmm. I discovered Spring Awakening as a play. I didn't know other people knew about it. But, you know, what's nice is that you can not know and still learn. And then in mm -hmm. retrospect, you can chuckle warmly. But like when your son played Mamilius, he was perfect. Him screaming, no, it breaks mm -hmm. my heart. You know, he's a good actor. Mm -hmm. He may laugh about it one day, but like a friend of mine, Patrick Page, is just going into Lear right now. And he's so generous over the years. He showed pictures of himself at his father's ankle on the Oregon Shakespeare stage, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is like how you grow. And it's such a great apprentice thing. So um, I, I, in terms of the plays I'd like to do or, or what the translations afford, I think the translations have a lot to offer. I mean, now I work internationally a lot. and. Um, you know, for the Ukrainians in the Prague Shakespeare Company, they're not going to quibble on a word the way you and I might. Mm -hmm. Wonder what is the word? What does it mean? And am I saying it right? And then they bring this energy to their acting that the United States has never seen. The Ukrainian actress is waiting. They wrote a show called Waiting for H, Waiting for Humanity, which is three women riffing on Waiting for Gatto. Mm. The amount of light coming out of their humanity was insane. Their purpose, their skill... The, the import of their uh, art form and what it's meant to do in that room, wake people up. There's 300,000 Ukrainian refugees in, in Prague right now where we work each summer. So the women that we meet that we're working with, their husbands are gone. Their children are starving. We have trouble in the world. And so there's something about the extremity of things um, that makes the work undeniably important. When those women are doing Shakespeare on the Prague stages we are all doing the same thing in a way we're raising power we're opening our hearts our minds are firing really quickly we're getting to know strangers we're magnetizing the audience and we're riffing on some human theme that's really important to the survival of the species really important to the survival of the species and how do you require someone to awake their faith when they're watching the stock market or like what is it how do you reach somebody who's not with you at all you know, not thinking with you at all. How do you bring people together? That's why I love, like, for instance, Zelensky, his background as an actor makes him a world leader of uncommon compassion and um, temerity and, and resilience and skill, really. Yeah, to almost a play a man better than, a, like, there are men playing politicians, but here there's a, there's a politician who is a man, undeniably mm -hmm. a warrior, a father, a, a husband, a dancer, a singer, a lover, you know, like a complete package. Mm -hmm. That's what we hope we would get from Shakespeare. And because I've never seen it in the men as often as I'd like to, I see it in Zelensky. I want to play Zelensky. 
when I do Henry V. Do you know? <laughs> I want to show you what I love about men, you know, <laughs> by being those things in front of your face. Look at me. I'm holding my heart open where most of the people proffer their inner thigh and wear the brown leather pants. Look, here's something else you could do with this moment. Or even just play it as somewhere in the league of the guys who play it well and feel that same thrill that we all feel because we feel so smart when we're saying that poetry. And also because the rushing, gushing flow of life comes through us. That that our hearts are knit to our, our solar plexus. And every time we let a deep breath in, we're opening our hearts. So if you're committed to opening your heart with every breath, every ins- every desire to speak is a full heart opening inspiration. Spirit flies in and then you just let it go to the people who need spirit. That's how they get inspired. You you. You, you breathe your truth out to the others. So I think that works very well in radio, is, but I think there's something in the room that mm-hmm. also happens that can't be captured in that same way. And it's partly because we can't look around at each other crying, you know, yeah. or you can't be the only one laughing in the theater. It's funny, though, so you're going to laugh at it. The Are you with me? Are you not with me? It's really interesting to me. Like, it's interesting to me that Medea was shouted down as a play when it was first done, because it was the first woman who escaped in a chariot drawn by dragons with no consequences for getting mad at her horrible husband. Um, It's interesting to me that play got shouted down, but it's the one that lasted. Do you know? Mm -hmm. These are hard plays to do. They're hard stories to swallow. But the fact is, you called Medea's people barbarians because you thought they were just babbling, and these people were far advanced. Uh, scientifically and in terms of language and every other thing, they were way ahead of you. (laughs) So, you know, that's good to know when you're doing Cleopatra, you know, who's kind of written as a drag queen bouncing off the walls. Like, did you write this for a man to play? Because women would actually have something on the line here. Mm. The way that Cleopatra's portrayed is a real problem for me. Mm. Who does that? I don't know anybody who behaves like that. You'd have to be insane. This is the leader of the world. Why would she be like that? You know, and it just seemed, mm-hmm. it seemed, it seemed like they were trying to slut shame the greatest pharaoh who ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they would do that in reverse, but it's an interesting play. The next one I'll do in Prague is uh, is called Roman Daggers, and it's it's made from uh, those two plays, Antony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar. It's got a lot of audience queuing, so the audience is a um, the mob. They know what their lines are, and they know when to come in. So I think it'll be an exciting group experience. And I say it's like Facebook, because you use your lung and your heart. You actually get to contribute. But uh, I'm talking a lot, but I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, Michael. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could just listen to you uh, for forever. Uh, there's so much you have to share, and, and it's all just uh, incredibly edifying. So uh, as is your performance, uh, but you as an artist are, are, you know, all of that and, and more. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your valuable time and energy and knowledge with us. And boy, do I hope we get you back for other Play On podcasts down the line. Thank you, Michael. I'm just delighted. Good to see you. Good to see you. 
You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcast.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like the 500, the 10, the Tough Juice Podcast with Karan Butler, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and our producer, Peter Musto. Our audio engineer and editor is Justin Cortez. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works with you in the Play On Podcast series, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcast. Next Chapter Podcasts.